Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Neppy. This time of year, images of turkeys are everywhere. But if you're really lucky, you'll get to see a turkey in the wild. And if you're really, really lucky, you might get close enough to hear their calls or observe some of their unique behaviors. This hour, we are going to learn about wild turkeys and other Iowa landfowl from wildlife biologist Jim Pease, Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University. Hello, Jim. Hello, Charity. Thank gobble, you. Gobble, gobble to you. <laughs> the only appropriate greeting. I, I do need to also mention that in addition to your title, I need to add that you are also the recipient of the Lawrence and Eula Haggy Heritage Award from the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation this year. This is given to an Iowan who demonstrates an extraordinary personal service and commitment to improving the quality of Iowa's natural environment and who encourages others to do the same. Congratulations, Jim. That's so cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was a, a quite a uh, uh, quite an honor, and uh, I'm very very appreciative of it. Uh, but as we know, conservation isn't the you know the the work of one individual. It takes it takes a community, and uh, I just I'm proud to be part of that community, and and uh, uh, to be recognized as part of that community with this award is was was quite wonderful. So thank you. So. All right, ready to talk turkey. Yeah, I, I, you got to it before I was. <laughs> See, I have to, I have to do this because I know where you're going, Jim. But actually, we're gonna we're gonna start with this term, gallinaceous birds, yeah. because turkeys are gallinaceous birds. The other birds we'll be talking right. about this hour also are. That's not an everyday term that we bandy about. So, what does it mean? Well, it is among wildlife biologists, but that's a that's a fairly limited uh, group of people. Yeah, it's it's members of the 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 order of birds called galliforms or galliformis, and and there are a lot of things in common in this group. Um, uh, first of all, they're they're all terrestrial. These aren't uh, doesn't include ducks and swans and geese and that sort of thing. These are all terrestrial, and they're on every continent except Antarctica. Um, these are basically ground-dwelling birds, birds that uh, walk around um, uh, uh, on the ground uh, instead of spending a lot of time up in trees like songbirds do, for example. Uh, they're, they're mostly large and heavy-bodied, although let's, let's put that in relation to songbirds, for example, they're, they're large. Uh, some are not, but some of the quail, for example, are pretty small, but they're still larger than uh, than songbirds, and they're a little heavier bodied uh, than than most songbirds are. They spend more time walking and running than they do flying. Unlike the swallows, for example, that spend most of their time on the wing, these gallinaceous birds spend a lot of time just walking and or running to escape. And they will occasionally fly to get from place to from place to place, but but they're not. They're not keen on flying, uh, particularly. Uh, <laughs> right, that is, we're not talking mechanism. about flightless <laughs> birds. We're, they, they can right, get off the right. ground. That's right. They can if they want to. And Yeah, exactly. In fact, you, sometimes you look at a turkey and you say, how do they get way up in those trees? Well, they fly. It's, they're quite good at it, actually. But uh, they just don't use it a lot, uh, like, like a lot of other birds do. 
They spend most of their time on the ground scratching uh, uh, for seeds, for fruits, insects, worms, anything they can find uh, underneath the leaves. They, they, almost all of them have a crop. That's that um, sort of temporary sack or storage chamber in their neck where they'll pick up seeds, um, uh, insects, that sort of thing, and they store them temporarily in the crop before it goes into a gizzard, which is this very muscular organ. Anybody who has uh, uh, eaten chickens, sometimes um, uh, chickens and other things come with uh, uh, gizzards. People like Some people like the gizzard. Uh, but it's this very muscular organ that is often filled with small rocks uh, that use are the, are the, essentially the teeth of the uh, gallinaceous bird uh, that that serve to grind up those uh, those seeds and insects and other things that they might eat. They nest on the ground as well, which makes them. Um, uh, it's a great place to to nest. Uh, it makes it easy. Uh, sometimes it's just a matter of scratching out a few leaves or or uh, adding a few grasses or some rocks in some cases. Uh, to uh, to nest right on the ground, but it also makes them subject to um, a lot of predation uh, predators, as well as flooding and things like that. So, uh, depending on where you choose to nest, being on the ground can be an advantage, but it can also be a, a, a disadvantage. They tend to produce pretty large clutches of eggs, and large, you know, most songbirds have uh, three to four eggs in a in a clutch of eggs, but but these gallinaceous birds all have 10 to 14 uh, is, is not at all uncommon, sometimes even larger. Improving the uh, odds for so, survival there, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, that, that maybe, you know, a few of those will, will survive. Um, the young, as a result, too, because of the nesting on the ground, the young are what we call precocial. That means within just a few hours of hatching, they're up and running around, and uh, sometimes on their own, but usually uh, with the uh, one or the other, sometimes both, but usually one or the other of the the, the parents uh, of those uh, uh, of those chicks. Um, and they're very important seed dispersers as a result of having that crop. Um, you know, they they're able to uh, disperse seeds throughout the forest, and and and. I say that, you know, the gizzard, I said that the gizzard was used for chewing up uh, essentially the, the seeds. But there are some seeds that have to go through uh, the gizzard of a, of a bird and be kind of ground up a little bit, but not totally. And they, they pass out the other end of the bird, and that makes the seed viable then. It's able to, to germinate. A good example is the Kentucky coffee tree in Iowa. We see these along um, in, in some of our forests. It's not terribly common in the whole state, but it's, a, it's more common in, in the southern half of, of Iowa than it is the northern half. But it's a, it, it, it's a very large seed. If you look at your thumbnail, it's a seed that is at least as big as your thumbnail and uh, uh, maybe a little bit bigger, half an inch or, or better in size. And it has an extremely hard uh, seed coat. Well, wild turkeys... Um, uh, pick them up and pass them through their digestive system without being able to totally crush even the, the strong muscles of the gizzard are not able to totally crush it, but they scratch the seed coat, the very hard seed coat on it, 
And when they, they pass them out the other end of the turkey, it then can absorb, the seed can then absorb moisture and germinate. So it, it the, the Kentucky coffee <laughs> trees you see have often in the past were, were only possible by the presence of turkeys. Now today I've seen some that have gone through floods and uh, so you'll see a bunch of same age um, Kentucky coffee uh, uh, trees on a river bottom and you know they've probably gone through a flood been scratched by the you know the sand and the rocks and the and the water and therefore were able to uh, to germinate but primarily through uh, through the passage of uh, through the digestive system of a turkey it's a pretty pretty amazing process when you, th- when you, th- you think about this uh, uh, this this legum- leguminous tree that uh, uh, has to go through a, a, an animal in order to uh, uh, to germinate right well and it just makes you think about coevolution and how important it is yeah. to have native species in an environment to support all the other species in that native environment exactly. it's fascinating yeah so, codependent on one another exactly <laughs> so should we now we understand what gallinaceous birds are. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the wild turkey in Iowa. Um, We've talked about this in the past, but I I think it's a story worth telling again. And I have a very special memory. I I had no knowledge of the turkey having disappeared or been reintroduced, but I do remember very clearly the first time I ever saw wild turkeys in Iowa. We were in a timbered area in Fraser, Iowa, near Fraser, Iowa, and there were like 15 turkeys. Suddenly wow. we just, you know, came across them and scared them and they start running. And then they to take flight, they had to just run for so far yeah. to be able to get themselves <laughs> into the air. And then they all landed in a tree and we were able to see them from where we were. And you know, oh, it was such great. a thrill to see them because I had never before in my entire life seen them. And I was probably, I don't know, 15 years old when we saw them. So sure. they yeah. they were not common when I was growing up. And there was a time when there were no wild turkeys in Iowa, right? Yeah, there there is. Because when, when Euro-Americans came to, uh, to Iowa, to the Midwest, uh, as, as they moved from the East Coast uh, into the forests of the of the east and and then farther farther west like m- many species um they were not protected in any way people took what they wanted whenever they wanted as many as they wanted and uh, those unregulated um uh co- particularly commercial hunting operations but turkeys were subject to lots and lots of uh, uh not even just commercial but but uh, uh unregulated uh, personal hunting and by the turn of the last century, by 1900, um, and actually a few years before that, there were really no turkeys left in Iowa. Just as there were no deer, there were no uh, very few ducks and geese, et cetera, et cetera. You know that that was the story of the late, the latter half of uh, uh, the 1800s in in the Midwest. It was this loss, incredible loss of, of species. Right, and well, and people hunting hunting to the point where these species disappeared, which is a it's oh, a, yeah. a phenomenon yeah. that happened again the, and again. Yeah, and especially the commercial hunting, the unregulated commercial hunting, and and that began to change uh, about nineteen hundred or so. You know, there were uh, Teddy Roosevelt and a number of his colleagues, uh, Gifford Pinchot, um, Aldo Leopold, uh, Ding Darling, a, a lot of those folks 
who were hunters recognized, wait a minute, something's happened here and we need to take responsibility for this. And so they began to reintroduce some things. Uh, it was uh, uh, quite an accomplishment in, uh, in Iowa. And we'll, and, uh, we'll find out more, more about, about it. Yep. <laughs> you can just talk us up to the break, Jim. <laughs> no. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with wildlife biologist Jim Pease, Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University. We're talking about turkeys and other gallinaceous birds this hour. You're welcome to join the conversation. 866-780-9100 is the number to call or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nubby. This hour, we are talking about turkeys and other gallinaceous birds in the state of Iowa, landfowl in the state of Iowa. With me, Jim Pease, Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University. And we're starting with wild turkeys, which are just incredible birds to observe, to see, and have an amazing story here in Iowa, where they were hunted to the point of at least statewide extinction in Iowa, and then really, uh, through careful work and effort, made an amazing comeback. And that's the part of the story we were we were just getting to, Jim. How did turkeys come back to Iowa? Well, they, uh, uh, they walked. Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, uh, there were attempts to reintroduce them uh, in the 1920s. But they were using uh, farm-raised birds and trying to get them to adapt to the island, uh, to the wild. And and as we uh, uh, know from lots of attempts with with all sorts of gallinaceous bird species over the years, reintroducing farm-raised birds to the wild, uh, they survive basically for that year, and that's it. Um, until the winter comes along, they just don't do well. And so, as early as the 1920s, there were. There were some attempts with farm-raised birds, but it didn't really work until the early 1960s. Then the Iowa Conservation Commission, today called the Iowa DNR, Department of Natural Resources, uh, uh, actually trapped some birds uh, in Missouri, brought them here and released them. And by 1970, uh, they, they were pretty aware that they were, they were breeding and doing fairly well. Uh, and... They, uh, they they released them into South uh, the Shimmick and and uh, 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 other forests in in southeastern Iowa uh, Stevens State Forest in in southeastern Iowa, and they they uh, they were reported to be doing well, but it was thought then that that these birds needed a thousand acres of continuous timber in order to survive. Well, they're only a a few places in the state that, that have that, mainly southeastern Iowa and northeastern Iowa, and that was it. 
but turkeys taught us otherwise, <laughs> which often happens. The species knows more about their needs than, than we do. And uh, they gradually spread. The first um, season on them was a very limited season, uh, spring season in 1974. And then by 1989, um, the the season was uh, opened up statewide. They really spread very, very readily. We found out that turkeys can do very well as long as there's enough cover, including timber, some timber, there's a lot of timber along our river systems all over the state, and it can be mixed with um, some grassland and uh, some cropland uh, as well. And so there's a lot of the state, uh, particularly along our river systems, that show exactly that kind of habitat. And now turkeys have spread on their own uh, uh, statewide and done very, very well um, in in. Um, uh, lots of lots of people are enjoying turkey hunting, spring hunting, uh, turkey hunting especially, but also in the in the fall of the year and in in most years. So it's it's a really an amazing comeback story, a real success story, and we've actually used turkeys, uh, born and raised here in Iowa, uh, trapped and then traded them to other states in a sort of a three-way trade. It's how we got otters back in the state, for example. It was quite, quite weird, but uh, we, di- we did. And uh, by trading turkeys that uh, we originally got from Missouri to other states, eventually we got otters out of uh, Louisiana. It was a, it's a, a, a very complicated story, but a, a neat story because it says we can do this, but they have to have the habitat uh, and, and be protected long enough to, to begin to do well again. So it's a real success story in the, in the state. Are there different kinds of native turkeys in the United States? Oh, yeah. There are five different subspecies of, of wild turkeys and includes the eastern, which is what we, we, we have here, uh, the Miriams, um, the uh, Rio Grande, the Florida, and the Goulds. Um, and they're all a little bit different. Um, I would say Eastern and Miriams look very, very similar to, to one another to most people's eyes. And then there are some different colored uh, stripes in the feathers and that of, of the other uh, three subspecies. But the turkeys are, wild turkeys are native, native only to North America, although the the bird has been now introduced into some other uh, countries around the world. They're one of um, a number of these gallinaceous species that are uh, around the world, and um, uh, they're they're on every continent, as I said, except uh, Antarctica. And so we have these these ground dwelling, um, you know, mainly mainly walking and running uh, birds on on every continent except Antarctica. That's that's kind of cool. Includes things that are turkey like. Uh, when I've been to Central and South America, I've seen these big. Uh, the males are are um, uh, black with with yellow combs on top. Those are called curassows, and uh, they're a turkey-sized bird. You see them in the tropics. Uh, it's 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 really an amazing amazing thing. So it's it's uh, 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 gallinaceous uh, birds. It, it seems to work in in uh, uh, in evolutionary times. Uh, it, it it works pretty well because the birds that type of bird has survived on on every continent. World except Antarctica. So. And what 
are some of the things that make turkeys so fun to watch if you do get the chance to see them up close? I mean, I I already talked about how difficult it is for them to get in the air and how they need a long runway. So watching them take off is really, really fun. But in particular, male turkeys have so many interesting features just about their bodies and behaviors. Yeah. Well, like most gallinaceous birds, the males tend to be more colorful than the females. Um, they they have, even the females will have some of their feathers are very iridescent. So in different lights, because feathers are made up, have, they have little scales on them. Bird feathers have scales on them. If you looked at them under a, a dissecting microscope, you could see those scales on a, on a feather. And people who have... Uh, uh, very strong magnifiers or, or even, um, um, you know, uh, small magnifying scopes at, at home. You can do this. Take uh, any feather at all and take a look at it, and you can see the scales that are, that are especially the, 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 the wing feathers, the body feathers, um, not the, uh, uh, the down feathers, but the, the, the primary flight feathers. And you can see the scales on those feathers, and those scales are really important and they act like little prisms on many gallinaceous birds. And those prisms then reflect light off at different angles depending on the angle of the sun that, that comes into it. So sometimes they'll appear sort of a bluish green, sometimes black, sometimes almost um, uh, reddish to purplish hues. Uh, they're really, really amazing. And, and lots of birds have it. The one that, that um, uh, people think of as, as one of the most colorful male gallinaceous birds in the world, of course, is the pe- peacock, which is the, the male of the peafowl um, uh, and, and is native, uh, with those big, incredible tails. But our wild turkeys have amazing tails as well, and they will spread those out when they're in what we call full strut, where they're walking around with their tails spread out and their 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 chest all puffed out, and that they they have this wild turkeys have this uh, set of bristles that comes right out of the middle of their chest. It's called a, a turkey beard, and uh, they can be ten to eleven inches long, quite commonly in adult males. And that's one of the things that distinguishes the sexes uh, between between males and females. Males have this, and they they throw out that beard so it hangs real low on the ground and they stomp around and they make this this uh, a ruffling uh, sound with their wings. And so it, it has a sort of deep penetrating uh, sound to it that you can hear throughout the forest. And uh, uh, so it's, it's, it's quite amazing. Uh, other gallinaceous birds have some similar sorts of displays. Um, rough grouse, uh, which we sometimes have in northeastern Iowa, um, I say sometimes because there is not a lot of great habitat left for them in northeastern Iowa. But there's a little bit, uh, and they display on a drumming log, and uh, it's called a drumming log because that's what it sounds like. The males get up there in the springtime and they walk up and down, strut up and down the log, and they puff themselves all up with air, and then they take their wings and uh, flap them in front of them, so it goes a. Uh, And could you hear that? I could, I could. <laughs> and and you hear that drumming, and you can't tell quite what direction it comes from, but uh, it's it's pretty amazing. And, and then, of course, prairie chickens do this booming with their, their voice and their feathers uh, as well. So all of these birds have this amazing 
uh, display that they use. And wild turkeys are, are just wonderful to watch. If you, uh, I think a lot of people go um, turkey hunting in the spring because, A, it's a great time to be outdoors and just sitting there. <laughs> and, and, B, you get to watch these birds just do these really great displays, and, and it's quite, quite fun. So before we move on from turkeys, we do have a question about turkeys from a listener, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions at 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100, or email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And this is a great question because we often do see turkeys in groups. Dirk wants to know, he says, we see two small groups of turkeys in the wildflower field behind our condo building in University Heights, one a mother and her adolescent chicks and another of four adults. Are they likely to all join up at some point? Well, in the wintertime, sometimes you'll see these mixed flocks. Uh, but most often, when you see groups of turkeys, depending on the time of year, uh, you will see exactly what the, the, the listener describes. You'll see hens with uh, their brood, uh, and 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 then in the often in the fall of the year, or late summer, early fall, hens and broods tend to come together. So you may see flocks of forty, fifty, sixty birds. It's it's pretty pretty impressive. Uh, big birds out in the field gleaning the, the the waste corn or soybeans off the off the field, and and the insects and worms and other things. Um, but and then often you'll see smaller groups of um, uh, almost adult males. These are called jakes. Uh, uh, their beards are much shorter, often four to five inches long, uh, so you can tell they're a jake. Uh, but they're they're in in the they're sort of teenagers. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a gang of of jakes uh, uh, walking around uh, by themselves. Now sometimes they will join back up. In the wintertime, and um, uh, occasionally at night, you'll see this because if the the uh, these birds roost in trees at night, they don't st- spend the night on the ground. They'd be too subject to uh, to predators if they did. So they, they they roost up in trees, and and the trees they really like because these birds evolved with um, uh, uh, lots of uh, forests that have large lower branches uh, to the trees. They often like these these savanna oaks, what we call savanna oaks, with these large open-grown lower branches and upper branches that are quite sturdy and stout. And you can get, you know, uh, 15, 20 turkeys up on a, on a single tree with, with no problem at all. Uh, and, and um, but because those, that type of tree is, Often at a premium in today's uh, uh, habitat, uh, they'll they'll uh, be might see fewer or uh, birds in a tree or more than you can imagine uh, because maybe there's only one tree in an area that's really suitable for a roost. So often the jakes and even some of the gobblers, the the, the big toms, will join with um, the hens and the young in a in a roost at night. Uh, it's a great, it's a great picture, you know, and, and they remind me, um, <clears throat> sort of, of their ancestry. If you watch them run, uh, you watch them peck and scratch on the ground and, and watch them run and then take flight. They, you know, they're not quite a velociraptor you know, <laughs> as we imagine them, but they betray their sort of dinosaur relatives, I think, um, you know, way back, um. 
Uh, and, and you can kind of see that dinosaur-like character to them. Scaly legs, you know, <laughs> the whole bit. It, 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 they're an amazing bird to watch. They really are. You mentioned um, in, in talking about other gallinaceous birds, you talked about prairie chickens. And you and I are going to spend a whole hour, I think, talking about prairie chickens this coming spring. But um, right. I was thinking about prairie chickens when you were talking about turkeys because prairie chickens, also native to Iowa, were also hunted to the point of extirpation in the state of Iowa. There have been efforts to, to reintroduce prairie chickens, and there are a, mm. a what, two places in the state where prairie chickens live? But right. that need for contiguous habitat that we thought turkeys had, I mean, prairie chickens really have that, right? Yeah, exactly. And and different gallinaceous birds have different habitat needs, which is why they're so successful. If, if you look at the landscape as a whole uh, across the United States, you can see, and Canada, North America, South America, you can see how... This has been ideal for this this order of birds because uh, they have been able to uh, dwell in these forested or semi-forested uh, or savanna-like environments, clear into Africa uh, as well. Uh, those savannas have been really good for gallinaceous birds. Uh, but there are, within the, that large context, there are certain needs that some birds have both for space, um, uh, for species that they need uh, to coexist with, uh, and um, just just specific habitat needs. And prairie chickens are one of those that need large expanses of grasslands, of continuous grasslands. Uh, and and um, uh, turkeys are able to adapt, are a little more adaptable to the woodland mix of habitat, woodland, cropland, grassland mix. But uh, 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 prairie chickens are not, and, and they really uh, need not just grass either. You've got to have um, uh, grasslands that are populated by lots of forbs, lots of other species, the flowering plants that uh, produce seeds and attract insects. Uh, the more diverse, what we would call diverse prairie, uh, is is much better, and they need large expanses of it in order to uh, avoid predation and to find appropriate amount of uh, of food of of appropriate plants uh, to to ensure their success. And that's found in very few places uh, left in 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 Iowa, even in the West, um, where uh, prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse, another gallinaceous bird, are are found. Uh, as they have eliminated a lot of the broadleaf uh, plants from those prairies, the birds can't survive, and they sort of disappear. Even though there's a lot of grass, it doesn't have the appropriate mix of species that they really need. So our radically transformed landscape just can't support that species. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. We are talking about gallinaceous birds. So we've talked about turkeys and prairie chickens and a little bit of rough grouse as well. We're going to talk about pheasants in just a moment. Wildlife biologist Jim Pease is here and you are welcome to join the conversation. Send an email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. 
There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me today, wildlife biologist Jim Pease, Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University. And we're talking about turkeys, grouse, prairie chickens, and other gallinaceous birds. And I think that we should talk about the ring-necked pheasant, Jim. Um, every time I have a conversation with somebody about the ring-necked pheasant, okay, not every time, but often people <laughs> who have lived in Iowa their entire lives are shocked to learn that this is not a native species because it's such an iconic species in Iowa, but it is not native. Right. Not not native to North America. They're native in Asia, and China in particular, uh, and there are a number of species, but the, the ring-neck pheasant is the one that was imported uh, back in the late 1800s into Oregon, uh, the state of Oregon, and uh, uh, was uh, 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 raised there. Uh, they uh, escaped, and, and Iowa's wild population um, came about. They were raising in the early 1900s. Uh, raising some of these Oregon pheasants in a, uh, on, a, on a farm here in Iowa, and a windstorm blew down the fences, and they escaped. And uh, they've done, done pretty well. Uh, and and uh, it was something like something in the neighborhood of 2,000 uh, uh, pheasants escaped from this uh, uh, near Cedar Falls, near where you were born and raised, uh, mm-hmm. Charity. Uh, and uh, near Cedar Falls, it was a game farm out there, and and uh, released into what then was a real patchwork quilt of Iowa farmland. Uh, the patchwork quilt uh, farms in in those days were averaged, uh, you know, under 160 acres of, uh, uh, in, in size. And uh, um, they they often were a mixed uh, farm across the state. They were a combination of small grains, um, uh, livestock. So there was pasture, there was hay ground, there was uh, uh, some corn or soybeans. Uh, but it was a real mixed habitat, smaller fields uh, that could be worked with small equipment. And uh, lots of fence rows. Uh, there was even always a, a, a wood lot, uh, so that they'd have wood for the wood stoves and uh, through the through the winter. Uh, so it was a real nice patchwork quilt of of habitat. And pheasants do very very well, especially where there's a mix of small grains and grassland uh, uh, in it. And so through the uh, through the efforts of of uh, lots of, of farms that uh, released. Um, uh, uh, pheasants uh, uh, on purpose, uh, including through the uh, um, the the 1970s, uh, the state conservation commission actually had several farms, pheasant farms across the state, where they raised and released pheasants. Now, as I said earlier, those probably didn't survive the winter very well, but they were out there for huntable populations for a, a, a very large number of hunters, not just from Iowa. But from around the nation, um, there are lots of stories from game wardens in the 
in those days of the 60s and early 70s that uh, and, and perhaps some are listening, in fact, uh, today that could call in and talk about the difference between now and then in terms not only in pheasant populations but in pheasant hunters, there'd be hundreds of thousands of um, of hunters, many of them from out of state. I remember stories about uh, uh, game wardens from game wardens that uh, where they would check licenses on opening day or the first couple of weekends, and they'd be checking licenses uh, of of hunters from you know fifteen, sixteen, twenty different states uh, in addition to Iowans. So it was a very different time, and uh, very commonly uh, during a pheasant season in the in the sixties and early seventies, uh, there were were frequently over a million um, rooster pheasants shot uh, every every fall, and 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 that is unheard of today. Uh, uh, we're back up now. The pop, pheasant populations are back up to. Where pheasant hunters this year are expected to harvest um, something in excess of 300, maybe 400,000 birds, uh, but it got down to um, you know 100,000 or or less for a, for a long, long time. So uh, for a number of years, particularly in the early 2000s and late 90s and early 2000s. So it's it's um, um, you know it, it, the populations certainly go up and down. But it all has to do, whether you're talking turkeys or quail or pheasants, uh, it all has to do with habitat. And the habitat, that patchwork quilt of habitat uh, that was Iowa in from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s is no longer. It just doesn't exist in very many places in the state anymore. And instead we have... Um, Farms that are not diverse, they're devoted simply to row crop agriculture or uh, some combination of row crop agriculture and confined animal species instead of having them on pasture. Uh, very large fields um, with an elimination of fence rows um, and other habitat areas that used to exist on every farm, the woodlot, uh, the um, uh, uh, you know the the little wetland, the pond, those are mostly gone, and uh, so that patchwork quilt doesn't exist anymore. So I don't think we'll ever get back to pheasant hunting as it was, or pheasant populations as they were in those days uh, of of uh, that patchwork quilt of agriculture, because that agriculture simply doesn't exist in the state anymore. When pheasants were accidentally introduced in Iowa, right. though they were also <laughs> introduced into um, an environment where there was a real vacuum because all of these other species had been hunted to the point where they disappeared. Exactly. You got it. That's exactly right. And, and uh, that it was a vacuum and, and it allowed, um, and they, they filled a niche, uh, uh, not only for hunting and for Great table fare, um, you know, uh, uh, but but also, um, uh, you know, maybe they would be featured on Iowa Ingredient even <laughs> in those days. Uh, but but it it was not a, uh, uh, it, you know, they they uh, other species, as you say, had disappeared, and so this really filled a void, habitat wise, and also uh, as a as a huntable species. 
That's why so many of these gallinaceous birds are called game birds because they were were hunted not just in the United States but across the world. Uh, they're game birds for human consumption um, and and have been um, um, from you know uh, the early days of humankind. Uh, the ground dwelling birds uh, are are often table fare for the human species. It's interesting to talk about a species like the ring-necked pheasants that, I mean, I think is is iconic. Uh, there are a lot of people that really feel like it's emblematic of Iowa in some ways. And of course, as, as we've talked about, it's an introduced species. On this program, we spend a lot of time talking about invasive species. Jim, right. what's, what is the difference in this case between an introduced yeah. species that has done extremely well and an invasive species? Does it just mean a, because great... we like to eat them that they're not invasive? <laughs> that's a great question because some people believe that because pheasants are here, that's why we don't have um, uh, the chance for uh, uh, prairie chickens or sharp-tailed grouse to come back, that, that they actually compete. Perhaps on an absolute uh, scale, uh, they would, if you put them in the same pen, yes, they would compete for the same insects and seeds and that sort of thing. But they have very different needs. Um, they, the other needs of a, of a prairie chicken, for example, are, are not identical to those of a pheasant. A pheasant can exist in this uh, as they, as is proven today, they exist in this uh, very agricultural landscape, with a, nesting in roadsides and and grass waterways that are in crop fields, um, and and prairie chickens simply cannot exist in those environments. They need large expanses of of prairie uh, grassland uh, in order to survive, and we've, we've shown that in southern Iowa. In uh, and we'll talk about that next spring with a with a program from there, but but it is uh, and pheasants do well or do reasonably well are able to continue to survive in these sort of uh, this this environment that is primarily agri- agricultural with a few bits of habitat here and there and they're able to uh, to make it. Um, you know, it's 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 an amazing thing and the change in the landscape of Iowa and. There are lots of studies about this, but now average farm size is much, much larger, of course, and and many farmers are farming, you know, several thousand acres rather than a hundred acres. <laughs> so it it the landscape has changed, the habitat has changed. Will we ever have uh, prairie chickens back to like they were, I, unless Iowa were to reverse its agricultural? Um, uh, status and 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 become the Iowa pheasant ca- or the pheasant capital of the world again. Um, I I doubt it. I uh, I just don't think that's possible. Uh, it's it's an agricultural landscape that we exist in, and um, uh, pheasants do better in that habitat than um, uh, prairie chickens do. So the we've talked a lot about turkeys and pheasants that that do do quite well in Iowa and you know the the turkey has this amazing comeback story yeah. and you know <laughs> I I see both of these species on a pretty regular basis so they're they're pretty common species in Iowa do you feel like they are 
threatened um, today in Iowa? Well, certainly, uh, you, all you have to do is look at, at populations of, of pheasants and their fluctuations in populations over time. We know, for example, that pheasant populations bottomed out um, uh, in the late 1970s and, and up through uh, the, the early 2000s because of the lack of grassland habitat. The fence row to fence row farming that was uh, promoted by uh, Secretary of Agricultural, uh, Agriculture Earl Butts in the 1970s uh, destroyed a lot of grassland, converted an awful lot of grassland uh, to row crop agriculture. That's not good for pheasants or quail or most other species, or turkeys uh, for that matter. Although they, they will eat some of that, uh, it's not a, a, a huge, uh, of huge importance uh, in, their, in their food supply. And, uh, uh, and then when CRP, Conservation Reserve Program Grassland, was brought back in uh, as, a, as a farm practice, and many farmers, over 2 million acres of uh, CRP was back in our 36 million acres, all of a sudden pheasant populations and other grassland bird populations, including a lot of songbirds, for example, uh, started their populations came back up. You provide the habitat, uh, they do very well. If the habitat is absent, uh, they don't do well. And, and the same is true of turkeys. Uh, certainly our landscape, our woodland landscape, is changing. We see um, turkeys depend very heavily on mast crops, which are the seed crops of, um, uh, of the trees. Uh, acorns and oaks, um, uh, the seeds, the flying seeds from ashes, on elms, uh, uh, the 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 BB-like seeds of uh, hackberry, uh, you know, cherry, that sort of thing. And as our woodlands change, uh, and and we have oak disease, we have woodlands. Uh, oaks have to uh, the acorns have to sprout in in pretty open uh, woodland habitat. They need sunlight in order to sprout. And many of our woodlands now are so, you know, uh, covered by uh, maple and basswood, which are much more shade tolerant. Uh, The oaks are disappearing. Acorns, therefore, are going to be a commodity. That could impact uh, turkey populations. And certainly we see some of that in some areas as turkey populations over time kind of ebb and flow, just like pheasant populations do with the amount of grassland in the state. Um. So it's it's a it's a constant battle. I think for those of us who like wild things and wild places, we have to make sure that our political leaders that we're going to be electing uh, on November eighth uh, uh, understand the importance of those wild things and wild places um, to us and to their constituents, and that they um, uh, act in and vote in such a way in the legislature, in Congress, um, in the State House, uh, to uh, uh, protect and enhance those wild things and wild places. Um, it's it's up to us, really. Uh, we are the dominant species on the planet right now, right or wrong, for good or bad. And what we do matters. And especially in a state that has such an altered state like Iowa. What we do on our own land and and on the lands um, left in the state for wild areas is really critical. 
and um, um, those those species will vary from year to year based on weather patterns. But if the habitat is there, they will survive. We have just about a minute left for people who would love to see wild turkeys in the wild. Obviously, you have to be very careful about hunting seasons and and uh, right. not put mm-hmm. yourself at risk and make sure that you are very visible. But what is the best way to find yourself some turkeys to see? Well, I tell you, it, it, during the wintertime, it's, it's, once the leaves are down, it's a lot easier to see the roost. <laughs> you get up early and go sit in the woods for a while. You may hear, and this is true in the spring and somewhat in the fall, you may hear them gobble from the roost, as they often do as the sun begins to come up and the turkeys wake up and the, uh, the, the, the toms are out there going, and uh, you may hear a little as the hens uh, go past you in the, in the, in the weeds or in the woods. Uh, and uh, you may hear their, their purr when they're in full bloom. But go to woodland areas, uh, uh, start with your county conservation board and see if they don't have a, a turkey watching program. Uh, go out with a turkey hunter in the spring and uh, in, enjoy this, this amazing gallinaceous birds of, uh, of the Iowa landscape. Jim Pease, thank you so much. My pleasure. Jim Pease, Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University. We've been talking about turkeys and other gallinaceous birds this hour on Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.